Good morning and praise the Lord. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 14. I've never met a person who said they like the idea of going to court. I don't think anybody likes the idea of going to court. Even if somebody is completely innocent, there's still some level of anxiety. There's so many unknowns. Will the, the truth come out? Will it be decided justly? Uh, in our text this morning in Mark 14, uh, we see an innocent man going before a court and being convicted for telling the truth. That's what happens in our text today. I want to read that for you. It's in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 53. I'll read down through verse 65. And immediately, while, excuse me, not 43, uh, 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, for many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit and to, to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Let's pray. Lord, your word is the rock under our feet. It is our foundation as we live in this day. And the message of your word is the hope that we have. It is our hope of salvation. And so while your word is like a a foundation made of rock under our feet, it is also the helmet of our salvation, is the, the hope that we find from it. Help us, I pray, to live today as people who are confident in you who entrust ourselves and our very lives to you day by day. Help us, Lord, to be nourished from your word this morning. 
And help me, Lord, give me grace as I preach, to be filled by your spirit, to preach not my opinions, but oracles as from you. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing on in the story here. Uh, The last couple weeks, we considered Jesus, after having led his disciples in the Passover meal, he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes to be alone, except for that he brought his disciples with him. And they go to the garden, and Jesus puts himself before his Father in prayer. And asks that if there's any way possible that the cup that he knows that he must drink would pass. And there was no other way. So he humbles himself for the Father, submits himself, and he goes goes forward. And Judas, the betrayer, comes with a band of soldiers, and Jesus is apprehended. He's taken. And he's brought then to the house of Caiaphas in the middle of the night. And that's where we find Jesus in our passage. He is before the Sanhedrin. That's the great council in Jerusalem. It was made up of 71 members, including the chief priest. And he's standing before them in the middle of the night for this trial. Now, it's maybe obvious to note here that the Sanhedrin didn't normally gather together at night. That's not typical. I mean, we know that from so many examples from our own lives. You know, for instance, if you have to go to the vet, you kind of hope that your animal is sick during normal business hours. Because if you have to take Kitty Meow Meow to the vet, after hours, you are going to be paying extra money, right? Oh, but if you have to take your animal to the vet on the weekend... Well, then you're really paying extra money. And then, if it's a holiday, your cat is worth its weight in gold to the vet. That's just the way that things operate. People like to work in hours that are convenient for them. Uh, we don't have to be uh, archaeologists or grand historians to understand that the Sanhedrin didn't normally operate like this. This isn't the normal time that it's convenient to hold court. So we should know right off the bat that something's up. Uh, This isn't the way that things normally go. And so we might want to ask the question, why? Why is the Sanhedrin meeting in the middle of the night for this trial? As we've been following along in Mark's gospel here, we already know the answer. Uh, We know that at the beginning of chapter 14 or rather, uh, at the beginning of, yeah, no, it is the beginning of 14 here. Uh, it says that at the time of the Passover, uh, they were seeking, this is 14.1, they were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And why? For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. Now, the Sanhedrin knows that if they go and apprehend Jesus in the daytime, drag him into trial and convict him of death at that time, there is going to be a meltdown worse than Chernobyl in Jerusalem. There is going to be a riot that takes hold of the city. Remember, the, the site, Jerusalem is four times its usual population right now as everybody's gathered for this religious holy day of the Passover. It is the key holiday of the entire year for the Jewish people. Everybody's gathered and the religious leaders want, on the one hand, to take hold of Jesus and put him to death, 
but they are terrified of the people. They are filled with the fear of man. So even here, we see that there is injustice and there is sin at play already in the Sanhedrin and in their trial. But there is further sin and hypocrisy in this account that we see in verses 15, or excuse me, 55 to 59. Uh, they bring forward false witnesses. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony. They're seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him. And then they go on to lay out this witness. <laughs> the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, they are breaking the ninth commandment concerning false witness as they're attempting to break the sixth commandment regarding murder. The, the sin and the hypocrisy is just dripping from this account. What is the charge that they bring against Jesus? How do they try to give him the death penalty? Well, the, the false witnesses come and they speak about a threat to destroy the temple. And we can think about from the teachings of Jesus where they might have come up with a charge like this. Even here in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 2, Jesus says, Do you see these great buildings? As he's walking by the temple, somebody says, Look at these great buildings and these great stones. And Jesus responds, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Elsewhere in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus again says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, and he talks about the destruction of the temple of his body, uh, but they don't quite understand that. So these words now are coming back at the trial, uh, but they're, they're coming with a bit of a twist. Here they're saying that Jesus has said that he will destroy this temple. And uh, we might step back and wonder, how exactly does that deserve death? It would seem strange if somebody in Zimmerman were to say, I'm going to destroy this or that building, and, and for him to get the death penalty, simply for saying that he's going to destroy a building. That seems really strange. Why would somebody be convicted to death over simply a threat to destroy a building? Well, I think the answer in that is that, of course, the temple isn't just any building. Uh, the temple is the centerpiece of the Jewish religion. It is the centerpiece of worship in the Old Covenant. Now, obviously, God is the centerpiece, but it's his presence in the temple that the people were to gather together and to make their sacrifices before and to worship. It was the national centerpiece. It was the pride and joy of the nation, and it was a social centerpiece. It was something that... People did. It became ingrained in the, the yearly life of the people of Israel. Just went to the fair yesterday. Noah got to see his first crash uh, derby, and that was exciting. Uh, people have those kinds of things in their life that they do on an annual basis, and it just becomes part of your life and your nostalgia and the things that you want to do when you grow up. Well, the, the temple was the centerpiece of all of that for these people. So for somebody to suggest that the temple was going to be destroyed, that, that would be something worse 
than treason. And certainly people do get executed over treason. Uh, For somebody to suggest that the temple would be destroyed uh, would perhaps be high treason. I think that's how and why they're bringing this charge to seek to put Jesus to death. Uh, And it's not a charge that only gets applied to Jesus. In fact, as we see in the book of Acts, the, the charge that the temple would be destroyed or that a charge against the temple is the very false witness that the Hellenistic Jews bring against uh, Stephen in Acts chapter 6. It's brought before that he's speaking against the temple. And in fact, as Paul in Acts 21 is apprehended by a mob, it's the same charge that comes before there. They say that he never ceases to speak against this people and this place. So this charge against the temple uh, comes up again and again. Now, I think that there is a bit of irony here as we look at this. We read in places like Matthew 1 that Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And here Jesus, the very presence of God, God come to dwell in a man, is standing before the elite religious body of Israel. And they don't see it. They completely miss it. They cling to the brick and the mortar of the temple as they reject the blessed Son of God, as they reject the true presence of God right there in their midst. They cling to one and reject the other. The glory of God is standing before them, and they miss it. Now, I think there's a lot of things we could take from that. Uh, One thing I think that we should be reminded of in light of this is that we don't want to mistake a physical building for the presence of God. It's very normal for us to to have a, a sort of reverence over a building when we meet and worship God. And it's, I think it's good to have a building to meet together and do this. But we, we never want to confuse the building itself with the place where God's presence is. I remember I was sitting in one of the upper offices of the church that we were at in the cities. And I saw somebody running by. And as he, he got to the church, he, he looked up at the church and he you know, quickly <laughs> had to run the sign of the cross. You know, there's something sacred, perhaps, about, about being there. Uh, I appreciate the respect for a church building. But at the end of the day, God's presence doesn't live in temples built with hands. The striking thing is God lives in the new covenant in his people. He lives in our midst. He lives in us and he is at work in us. You know, if this building were taken away from us and we weren't allowed to meet here, we wouldn't lose the church. Berean Christian Fellowship would still exist because we would be alive in him and we would still have one another. We want to get our priorities straight. We, we don't want to make the same mistake of investing uh, our heart or our worship in a building uh, when in fact God is in our midst. We wouldn't want to miss Christ before us uh, for something physical. We've seen now... Uh, the trial against Jesus, as this trial is being conducted. Uh, let's look at the, the sentence against Jesus. The, the case, as we see it here, that's brought before them, 
really it's, it's beginning to crumble. It says here that they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They, they couldn't find anything that would stick. And perhaps there's a bit of desperation with the high priest here as he stands up and he begins to interrogate Jesus, one-to-one here. In verse 60, says, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And Jesus responds with silence. False witness is brought against him and he doesn't say anything. I'm guessing that's not what the chief priest was wanting. He was wanting something to work with. And here Jesus doesn't say a single thing. Uh, There must have been sweat forming on his back, I imagine, at this point, as this opportunity is slipping away. I I have to imagine that as much of a sham trial as this was, he still wanted something, at least, that looked plausible for a conviction of death. Then he makes another jab and another question. After Jesus remains silent, verse 61, and again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Will Jesus remain silent? Will he speak? Jesus speaks truthfully. Verse 62, Jesus said to him, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In response to that short statement, the high priest takes hold of his garments and he rips them wide open. I have to imagine people were howling. Uh, what do dogs do? They howl. Howling <laughs> at this point. People are shocked. You know, when, when somebody rends their garments, it's old English, when they tear their garments in the Bible, Usually that's accompanied by some kind of news that is so devastating that they can't handle it. It's uh, something that's shared that is so shocking that they don't know what to do. Uh, Rending the garments, tearing the garments is a, a picture of shock and grief. And I have to imagine to some extent at this moment, there's some level of theatrics thrown into it. Uh, They're playing this up. But here, they, they've got the statement they need. They, they give a, a guilty verdict. What's people's decision? The Sanhedrin says he is worthy of death. And from there, then they begin to beat him. They mock him. <laughs> if he's the Christ, then he must have prophetic power. So they cover his face and they strike him. They say, well, who hit you? Prophesy, tell us about who hit you. Uh, an unbelievable amount of Shame and mockery is already descending upon Jesus here. If you've watched trials on camera when a, a verdict is given and somebody's brought off out of court, usually uh, an officer comes, it's very peaceful, and they're led away out of the courtroom. That's not what happens here. Uh, the, the guards that come up, they join into it. They start beating him as well. It's the kind of injustice and shame that's being hurled upon Jesus at this moment. It's immense. That's how this trial is conducted. It's a shame and it's a sham. Now we might wonder why this reaction to Jesus' statement here. 
Some might consider it an overreaction. I think why we see the reaction here, it all comes down to what Jesus says about himself. The high priest asks him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus' short response is, I am. That's the first part of it, at least. Jesus here declares himself to be the Christ. Here he accepts the identity of the Christ. Uh, Throughout Mark's gospel, we've seen that Jesus has been keeping his identity pretty secret. When demons cry out, declaring who Jesus is, he he rebukes them, he silences them. Uh, Even when Jesus' own disciples finally understand that he is the Christ and Peter declares him to be the Christ, Jesus affirms it, and then he tells them not to tell anybody. See that in Mark chapter 8. He's been secret about his identity as the Christ the whole gospel through. But now he's standing before the Sanhedrin. He is standing before the most public body you could stand before, and he accepts that identity. He lets the world know that he is the Christ. This is a key turning point. There's been different turning points in the Gospel of Mark, but here, in a sense, is the grand unveiling of who Jesus is uh, to the world in Mark's Gospel. He is the Christ, which means he is that figure that's prophesied throughout the Old Testament. He is the son of David. He is one who will arise in the lineage of David, whose kingdom will never end. He is the the one who will speak as a prophet of old. He is like one of the judges in the book of Judges who arises to deliver God's people. He is the high priest, the one who is going to make atonement for the sins of God's people. And here he is standing on trial. He speaks truthfully to who he is. The next thing that he says here is that he affirms that he's the son of the blessed. That might be confusing. What does he mean, the son of the blessed? Uh, In Hebrew, uh, there are uh, roundabout ways to talk about God. We see that throughout the New Testament, different times, where instead of just saying God, we'll say, for instance here, the, the son of the blessed. What it really means is the son of God. In fact, uh, later, Jesus says that uh, in verse 62 that they'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. We could just say seated at the right hand of God because that's what it says elsewhere. But here it says at the right hand of power. Uh, The Jews often uh, saw God's name as so revered that they shouldn't say it. Uh, And there's there's a good level of respect in that. Uh, even in the, the Hebrew manuscripts where we encounter the word for the Lord, the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the, the Jewish scribes would actually write in different vowels because they, they considered the name of God so holy that you shouldn't read it out loud. So when they came reading along in the, the Old Testament, when they came to the word, the name Yahweh, they would say Adonai because they didn't want to say Yahweh because it was too revered and too holy. In fact, that's where the word Jehovah comes from. If you ever wondered where we get the word Jehovah, it's because the vowel points that were put in for Adonai were pasted onto Yahweh, and then when Germans tried to pronounce it, the, the Y was, the, anyways, it came out as Jehovah. So the, 
that's where that comes from. But the, the Hebrew is Yahweh. Uh, but there is this, there's this reverence for the name. And so that's where, why he says, the son of the blessed. The, the high priest is asking Jesus, do you claim to be God? Are you the son of God? And Jesus says, I am. <laughs> Interestingly enough, even his response, I am, is ego eimi, which gets translated from the old Hebrew to the old Greek as that, that's what the word, the name that's used for Yahweh. So, so Jesus is very blatantly here declaring himself to be God himself. That's why these guys are ripping their clothes up. That's why there is uh, this condemnation to death. There is another place in Mark's gospel where we see Jesus as the Christ put right next to Jesus as the Son of God. And that's way back in the beginning. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So really, this point here that Jesus is making is kind of the main point of Mark's gospel. There at the beginning, Mark has told us that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God, and then in the chapters that follow, Mark continues to put before us what kind of a Christ he is and to prove to us that he is the Christ. When Jesus encounters demons in the synagogue, the demons can't help themselves. They're shrieking. They're crying out. And Jesus rebukes them, casts them out. He confronts sickness. For instance, in Peter's mother-in-law, she's got a fever. She's Sick in bed and she can't get up. Jesus takes her by the hand and raises her up. He has power over sickness. He finds the paralytic who's lowered down through the ceiling. And he says to him, your sins are forgiven. And people are shocked. What do you mean your sins are forgiven? Who can forgive sins but God? And that's the point. Jesus has power over sins. The disciples are in the boat. They're on the edge of death. Jesus rebukes the storm. And it listens. Jesus has power over nature. A little girl lies dead. As dead as can be. And Jesus says to her, Talitha Kumi, little girl, arise. And she does. The Christ who was prophesied in the Old Testament is far better than anything they could have imagined. What kind of a person has this kind of power? Yes, he is the Christ. He is the fulfillment of everything that God has promised and more. He is God himself come in the flesh. As we read Mark's gospel and all of the gospels, in fact, sometimes the, the gospel writers are called the evangelists because what they're doing in writing these gospel accounts is putting before us who Jesus is. So reading just this morning, in my devotions at the end of John 20, that John says that these things are recorded. They could have written all sorts of things, but these things are recording so that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God and that in, in believing in him, uh, you may have eternal life. I'm paraphrasing that. I'm on, I want to read that to get it right. It's at the end of John 20. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
I'd rather read it than have my paraphrase. Uh, that's the point of the Gospels, really all of them. They are putting Jesus before us. Now the identity of Jesus is put before the Sanhedrin. And how do they respond? They reject him. They hate him. They put him to death. John says that the word, that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. We see that right here. Jesus comes before the religious leaders and they reject him. We are also faced with the same question. Jesus is put before us in these Gospels and in this Gospel, and we have to answer that question. What will we do with Jesus? Of course, I want to say that if this morning you have not submitted yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, now is a great time to do it. If you have not come to know him as your Savior and your Messiah, do it. Go before him. Put your heart in his hands. Trust him. He is faithful and he will save you. That invitation stands every day as long as we have life. So take him up on it. Now, if you have come to know Jesus, if he is your Savior, then this text is calling us to accept him as God. And if he is God, then that means that we owe everything to him. He's our maker, and so everything that we have belongs to him. Everything that we do, we do in light of him. Our entire lives are his. So the question is, are you living like that? Have you submitted all of your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Can you say truthfully that he is Lord? He is my Lord. He's Lord over every aspect of your life. If Jesus is God, then that's what he is. and That's what he should be to us. Jesus is either everything or he, at the end of the day, is nothing to us. And if he is God then he deserves our worship. We should worship him. I want to look at one last thing in our text here, and we'll be done. We've seen the trial against Jesus and the sentence against Jesus. I want to consider last here the judgment of Christ. I don't mean here the judgment against Christ. We've seen that already. Uh, But actually, it's the other way around. Verse 62 And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is not only the Christ, not only the Son of God, but he is also the Son of Man. We've said before, as we were looking, especially in Mark 13, uh, that Jesus' title, the Son of Man, it's his favorite title to give to himself. He refers to himself as the Son of Man over and over and over again we find that phrase uh, in Ezekiel. Sometimes Ezekiel is called the Son of Man as a prophet. But there's another figure as the Son of Man that we've seen before, uh, and that is the one who comes to the Ancient of Days in the book of Daniel. And and this one is not just a prophet. This Son of Man uh, is none other than God himself. In Daniel 7, verse 13 to 14, Daniel is given a vision Previously, he's seen the Ancient of Days seated, which is referring to God. And in verse Daniel 7, 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. <clears throat> so here is the Son of Man who comes with the clouds of heaven, and he inherits all nations. He inherits everything. Everything is given over to him. And that is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Son of Man. He is the one who comes to the Father. He is seated at the right hand of God. And his is a dominion that shall never end. Uh, next year we'll be coming up on another election. And be a lot of question about who will be in office. Uh, the, the office may change over to another. Uh, that's, that's normal in our nation. Even in nations where there's a, a totalitarian sort of despot who rules his whole life long. Maybe 60 years. That dude's still going to die. That power and everything that he accumulated is going to be handed over to another. The dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ will never end. He has been raised to live forever. His kingdom shall never end. We see also in the Gospels that the Son of Man will act as judge. Matthew 25, Jesus describes future judgment here. Matthew 25, verses 31 to... No, I'm in the wrong place here. Uh, yeah, Matthew 25, 31 and following. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say to them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will say, answer, saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Here's the great, another great irony in our passage. Here Jesus, the Son of Man, stands before the Sanhedrin. He stands before the great council, and he is condemned. He is judged by this religious body. But he is the one who, at the end of the day, will judge everybody. He will be the final judge. 
as we live our lives in this world, uh, this can be hard, but we are not called to defend our own honor or the honor of the Lord with violence. There are plenty of religions out there that do defend the honor of their prophet and God with violence, but that's not what we're called to. Like the Lord Jesus Christ, we can submit ourselves to him in this day and in this land as we wait for the final judgment. Jesus says, vengeance is mine. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That vengeance we put into his hand, knowing that he will be the judge. There is coming a day in which everybody will walk before the Lord. And even our enemies, those who would persecute us, will have to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. For every one of these members of the Sanhedrin, if they didn't turn from their sin and repent by time they die, someday they will be in a courtroom. Someday they will stand before the glorious Son of Man in the judgment. And what defense will they make? They'll have none. That's the condition of every single human being. We might not have committed the sin of condemning Jesus to death unjustly, but all human sin is heinous before the Lord because it's committed against the king of the universe. Every one of our enemies will have to stand before the Lord. That should give us actually pity for them. I don't envy anybody who has to stand before the Lord claiming their own righteousness. I know my own heart enough to know that I would never stand. And I know from the Bible that no one will stand before the Lord in judgment. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. <laughs> Love those who persecute you. Oh, that God would help our hearts to do that. What kind of a people would we be in our day if we would follow his example and do that. This morning we have seen the King of Glory, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Christ, stand in the trial here. He is unjustly convicted of death. He's convicted of death for telling the truth. And our next time together we're going to continue in Mark's Gospel. And we'll see the contrast with Jesus who speaks the faithful testimony here and Peter who stumbles. But even in that, we'll find encouragement for ourselves. Let's pray. Jesus, you are glorious. And you are worthy to be praised. And we will praise you. As you help us, we will praise you in this day. And we will praise you forever. Receive the praise we give. Amen. I'll invite Scott to come up and lead our sharing time.